Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 157 of the End Focus podcast. I'm your host, Andy Corrigan. With me, as always, is Andrew Brown. Always. Every single time. And Tori Wassenaar. Sometimes. <laughs> uh, no, all the time. Yeah. Um, yeah, disappointed no one led with uh, It's a Me. But, oh, well. <laughs> this uh, this week, we're going to talk about the uh, Beamdog D&D games again. Uh, I'm going to talk about Metro 2033. Uh, Andrew's going to give us an update now that he's finished Subnautica. We're going to talk about Mario Golf Super Rush. Um, and Tori's going to give us the rundown on Metroid Zero Mission. So uh, with that, let's just get right into updates from the previous episode. Okay, uh, so Baldur's Gate. Andrew, I think I'm just going to tag this uh, onto the end of your chat about Planescape Torment because we'll have a little bit of crossover. Keep it thematically together but subnautica you have uh, finished that yeah how, how did you end up on it i liked it but i didn't like it as much as i did when the game first started uh, again subnautica is a survival crafting game where you play as the survivor of, of a spaceship that crash lands on an alien ocean planet and you've got to, starting from nothing, build up the supplies to survive and then to subsequently escape the planet. And in addition to that, find out why your ship crashed in the first place, because that, that is a big part of the reason that escaping is not as easy as it should be. And when I first talked about it, I, I was still fairly early on in the game. I was still mostly just swimming freeform, and I, I had a small one-person submarine that couldn't go very deep. Uh, and then I had just started building my base. And then very shortly after that, I unlocked something called the Cyclops submarine, which is a really, I was actually surprised at how big it is. It's a very large three-person submarine, but because this is a single-player survival game, you're you're by yourself. So the challenge is piloting a submarine designed for three people with just one person. And at that point, the game just became all about the submarine, and I didn't really enjoy piloting the submarine, partly because, again, it's designed to be driven by three people, and you're by yourself, and that that's an intentional part of the challenge, but I just I just didn't enjoy that challenge, and and then just I felt like I, I had to use it. Like, it, it's possible to beat the game without using it. I've I've read about people doing it, but it, it feels much more like a a self-imposed challenge. Like when you when you look at the tools that are available to you, it feels very much like the Cyclops is what you're supposed to use to reach the bottom most levels of the ocean, which is where all the the secrets you need to uncover are at, and the most rare resources you need to build the most expensive and important gadgets you need to escape are also found down there as well i just i wasn't wild about it and it, it kind of sucked some of the fun out of the game as i at the start was exploring this very open reef environment and every so often i would get attacked by a sea monster that would swallow me in one hit and i would have to respawn and then i got the cyclops and then i was exploring very narrow caverns in this, this thing that was quite difficult to drive it just it didn't click with me the same way the first half of the game did. I still enjoyed it. I still liked it, but I would have liked it better if, if I hadn't felt so uh, railroaded, basically, <laughs> into using that <laughs> submarine is how I felt. Uh, I'm hoping that the sequel, Subnautica Below Zero, which I'm going to play sometime in the second half of the year, gives me more options in the second half instead of forcing me to use that 
submarine to explore the the deepest parts of the ocean fingers crossed yeah it sounds like one of those things where you can see what they're going for but it doesn't quite work yeah so uh yeah so that's uh subnautica uh we have no new switch news this week i don't think so we'll just uh carry on with the the stuff we've been playing okay so um Let's start with the D&D stuff. Uh, so, Andrew, Planescape Torment. Uh, I've already been speaking a bit over the past couple of weeks about my experience with Baldur's Gate. Uh, you decided on Planescape Torment, which is the recommended starting point, I think, for these uh, Beamdog games. And, yeah, you you finally ready to talk about it. I think you beat it. Yeah, I beat it a couple of weeks back, but with E3 and everything else going on, I, just, I decided to just hold it off until we had an episode that needed uh, some some more things to talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, Planescape is, or Planescape Torment, I should say, is an Infinity Engine RPG that was ported to consoles by Beamdog, and that's significant because uh, the Infinity Engine RPGs and the Infinity Engine style RPGs like uh, Pillars of Eternity and Divinity, you know, they're called PC RPGs because for decades people were like, you have to play these on PC, they don't work in anything else. Well, that's not true. (laughs) <laughs> as, as Beamdog has mm-hmm. now adequately demonstrated that it's just simply not true. It's just lack of imagination and people being too bullheaded to try. But anyway, Planescape Torment is set in the Dungeons & Dragons setting of Planescape, which is divided into all kinds of realms. There's a big explainer that goes into the whole thing, but I, I, I don't remember all of it. Because quite frankly, you could play most of Planescape without even thinking about most of it. Mm-hmm. But uh, just 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 nerd intervention here. Uh, it's part of the Forgotten Realms, which is a whole world contained within Dungeons and Dragons. Character. I don't care. Uh, <laughs> Planescape is made up of a bunch of different realms, and each realm represents like the elements, you know, like fire and water, and I think lightning, and I think smoke has its own realm or something like that, and also all the different alignments. So like there's a, a lawful neutral realm, there's a true neutral realm, there's a, a lawful good realm and everything like that. And these all exist in like this dimension where they exist in like a big ring and where the two realms like exist beside one another, they start to mix together. So like there's a place in Planescape where fire and water starts to mix together. So you go there and you're suddenly consumed in boiling water. That sounds like fun. So <laughs> it's a very interesting kind of setting because it's the kind of place where basically anything can happen, which I think is the point of why it was made. But I also... I haven't heard much about it outside of this game, so I'm not sure it's actually really all that popular among Dungeons & Dragons players. It's it's a very weird setting. If you play this game, that's just... You, you look around and you're like, this is Dungeons & Dragons? Really? <laughs> this is just bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> but at the center of Planescape is this city called Sigil, which is the city of portals because everywhere you go in sigil there's a portal but you need to know a specific key or passphrase or some kind of action you have to do to open the portal and not everybody knows what these are so you could be walking through sigil and you might be just whistling to yourself and then suddenly a portal opens and dumps you into the lightning realm and you instantly die from electricity uh it's (laughs) it's that kind of world and also you meet a lot of people in sigil who have accidentally portaled themselves there in the same sort of way where they're out 
in their own little world somewhere, I think even outside of Planescape, and they accidentally open one of these portals, and now you're trapped in Sigil for the rest of your life. Have fun. And the, the player character in this setting is the nameless one. Uh, this is an immortal character, and uh, what that means is every time they, they quote-unquote die, then they they seem to just black out for a few hours and then wake up a short time later uh, with all of their memories gone. So they've uh, tattooed on themselves a lot of information that they need to know. That way, the next time they wake up, they'll have hints that they need to get started on their next life because you know some of their lives are pretty long, as you find out over the course of playing the game and you start encountering evidence of your past lives and you sort of reach the conclusion that I don't want to be immortal anymore. Being immortal sucks. So the goal of the game is to find out what happened because you don't remember and why you became immortal and put a stop to it. And so the character you play as is is a sort of character I, I would never really play as in a Dungeons and Dragons game, which I appreciate because, you know, the only time I would really play as a character like this is if the game requires me to. So <laughs> otherwise I would go for something boring like an elf or like a human merchant or something, which is how I usually go when I play like Elder Scrolls or something. But this character is basically some... Something between a cross between a zombie and Frankenstein. Because <laughs> they've, they've been beaten up and killed and dismembered so many times that their body is not in great shape anymore. Not, not to mention tattooing information about their past lives all over their body. So you can actually upgrade your character by literally ripping off your body parts and replacing them with better ones. <laughs> uh, yeah, at one point, I... I found an eye from some legendary monster that had like bonus stats for that monster but you know what is a person going to do with an eye well not a problem for the nameless one just rips out his own eye and shoves that eye into place and a few <laughs> minutes later it works just fine as their own eye and i also learned that at one point to protect a, a valuable ring just before he died the nameless one swallowed that ring so i went and i found this sort of surgeon to rip into my intestines and find that ring and then i equipped it and yeah it was actually a, a pretty good ring that uh, got me out of a few scrapes over the course of the game it's a pretty interesting player character you play as uh, and it's a very stat driven sort of game with the especially with your player character, because how you build up your, your strength, your dexterity, your intelligence, your charisma, and all of that, it plays into the dialogue options that you have playing through the game, but the game doesn't tell you that. So like, unless you know that, unless you have like 20 intelligence, you're not going to see certain dialogue options. You're probably not going to suspect that you're getting a very different play experience from another player who has built their character differently. And as a result of this, the first two-thirds of Planescape Torment is really, really good. It's mostly running around Sigil doing quests that uh, expand on the setting and the Nameless One. You learn a lot more about Sigil, and you learn a lot more about the Nameless One and the many lives that they've, they've lived over the course of their immortal existence. And one particular life is very important and that that particular life is really more of a villainous role and in as much as planescape torment really has an actual villain that past life of yours is probably it which is also another reason planescape torment is so unusual in the genre this is also 
where when I, I spoke about Planescape very briefly a few episodes back, I said I have played this game before, only it was called Fallout New Vegas. <laughs> it, it is Running around Sigil, it did feel very much like running around the New Vegas area in Fallout New Vegas. Not, not so much the outer lying regions, which really did feel more like Fallout 3, but when you get into the city itself and there's not a whole lot of combat in there and you can play Fallout New Vegas for 10, 20 hours at a time where you're really just talking to people and solving quests through like negotiations and trading favors and you don't really do much combat that's really what planescape torment felt the same way as well there was a lot of talking to people and trading favors back and forth and there was combat like around sigil there are street thugs basically that would come up and pick fights with me and they were super easy to beat even at level one so i i didn't i didn't think much of them and I did notice that I was fighting a lot more than I was really expecting to based on everything I'd read about the game. So I, instead of continuing to develop my intelligence and my charisma stats, I I left them at the level that I started them out with at the start of the game. And I started building up my strength stat because I figured, well, my intelligence and my charisma is getting me by in these dialogue checks. Uh, and if I'm going to be doing this much fighting, I would like to be a little bit better at it. So <laughs> I started putting points into strength and that was a huge mistake because <laughs> then I got to the last third and the last third of the game is pretty bad. The game suddenly becomes super linear and you leave sigil and the hubs become much smaller. Like some of the hubs, like calling them a hub is generous. You literally only spend a few minutes in them. And it feels like in this part of the game, they were following a really ambitious design document, but didn't have time to actually do everything in it. So they just follow the table of contents and everything feels like a compromise on the game they wanted to make because you got to meet those deadlines. It basically inverts the first part of the game's emphasis. There's a lot of repetitive combat in cramped dungeons, swarming with clones of the same few enemies. And I think if I had played Baldur's Gate before now, I might have been better prepared for this part of the game. I might have statistically built my characters better, and I might have understood like the mechanics of playing an Infinity Engine game a lot better. But I got there with characters pretty unprepared for the level of combat I was suddenly expected to do, and not very well built statistically and with pretty lousy equipment because quite frankly until suddenly I got to this point in the game where suddenly I was not able to go back to sigil to get these things done so after spending the first two-thirds of the game in sigil not really needing combat skills or ability or equipment to get by I'm now expected to play the rest of the game cannot go back to sigil to get those things done um, and I've got to play the rest of the game in these pretty advanced combat scenarios uh, luckily, I, I did find a way to cheese my way through the rest of the game. Uh, there's a character called Mort, who's this annoying skull, and he has this ability called Litany of Curses, I think it's called. It, it's a free spell. You can cast it as much as you want. There's no cooldown. It, there's no mana cost, which is pretty amazing for an Infinity Engine RPG, actually. And it, it's a taunt, basically. And the really fun thing about this Litany of Curses is uh, actually it develops over the course of the game. If you encounter certain characters or you do certain things in different areas that make you run into characters that will insult you, then Mort's Litany of Curses ability will actually learn those new insults and become stronger. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I it, love that. It's a great mechanic. Uh, and 
basically how I got through the entire last third of the game was I would taunt as everybody in the room with Mort's Litany of Curses, then I would have the entire rest of my party target characters one at a time while I just ran around in circles with Mort while everybody else chased him. Because, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it was cheese, but it was the only way I could get through the game. It was the only way I could manage it because nobody could take hits. <laughs> so it was pretty bad. It was partly my fault, but... Eh. These are the problems with the old PC RPGs like this is they're just they're not user friendly or beginner friendly. <laughs> mm-hmm. If if I had not discovered that I could do this to get by, I would have really had no other choice but to restart the entire game. Except when I got to the very end when I suddenly didn't have Mort in my party anymore. <laughs> and at that <laughs> point I had no choice but to drop the game down to its lowest difficulty setting and even then I was barely getting by. Uh, it was, it was pretty dire, and it just it sucked all of what little enjoyment I was still getting out of it. Because even if I was able to engage with these combat systems on a level where I was in a fair fight, uh, it, the the quality of the game just goes downhill once you leave Sigil. It's terrible. It's really disappointing. Now, this is a as I, I briefly mentioned at the start. This is a port of games that were called PC RPGs because they were believed for the longest time that you could only play them on the PC or more specifically you could only play them with a mouse and a keyboard and how Beamdog found out how to get around that is everything is on a radial menu and you can like assign skills to hotkeys on like your your left button radial menu you hold down one of the shoulder buttons it opens a radial menu and all your options are there in a big circle and the game just freezes while you're scrolling through these it's it's pretty straightforward it, it really is not that difficult conceptually to come up with it's just people didn't even want to attempt to think about you know Baldur's Gate or Planescape on a console they just didn't want to do it but Beamdog did it it works great uh, for all the difficulties i had playing the game in that last third uh none of it was because of the engine it was it was just the way the game was made i would have been just as miserable playing it on pc so (laughs) uh, i played pillars of eternity last year that was a disaster but that was because it was just a terrible port uh had again had nothing to do with uh the controls and the way they were redesigned to work on on consoles that that all worked great and actually they i don't remember who did that port but they basically just copied what beam dog did here so I, i'm very pleased with that and you know i didn't have the best time with planescape but i, I am excited to get into boulder's gate now when i have a chance to play it in the near future but not right away cool well we actually have some similar experiences uh with me and boulder's gate as well quick question um in Planescape, do you end up with like a, a roster of party members to drop in and out, or is it just you and the skull for most part? There is. Um, there are more party members than you can actually fit in one party, but I didn't get them mm-hmm. all because a couple of them are pretty well hidden. Uh, but yep. everybody I did have would just perfectly fill that that party meter up. And uh, I do know that the, the class system in Planescape is much simplified from Baldur's Gate. Like Almost everybody mm-hmm. is a fighter. <laughs> which uh, really <laughs> emphasizes, you know, h- how simple that combat started out at the start of the game. Like, uh, and you can class change the nameless one, but the other characters you get, what they are is what they are, and you can't mm. you can't change them. And like, you only get a couple wizards. There's two, I think, and everybody else is basically a fighter and 
some other class or just a fighter. So <laughs> a little different there. Cool. So your comparison with the uh, Fallout New Vegas, I feel like Baldur's Gate is more like the Fallout 3, if we're continuing hmm. that analogy. It's it's like the more uh, more familiar style RPG setting um, in, and in terms of the, the things you do. Um, in this one, your party selection is like vital to beating the game. You know, like you can swap people in and out as much as you want, um, much like, you know, modern RPGs like uh, Mass Effect or Dragon Age, people will leave you if you do things that they don't agree with. So if, if you accidentally get into a scuffle with city guards at Baldur's Gate, for example, uh, two of your followers will just be like, nah, not dealing with you anymore, and they'll, they'll just wander <laughs> off. There is a, they, I think in this one, they, they do the uh, character alignment stuff really well. So everyone you pick up has a different alignment and they will conflict. I'll be honest, I didn't want that experience because, you know, because there's such old games. Um, I, I wanted as uh, frictionless time with it as possible. So I, I did look into which ones would suit each other and not uh, butt heads and have me to make dif- difficult decisions and, and things. Like for like, like I was getting through pretty combat heavy because you know like i typically have my main character as a fighter and i picked my party to complement that and like the combat got a lot easier the more powerful my mage got um and some of the other character classes have you know a certain level of magic they can use once all those things were working in tandem like combat was the most fun part of the game like you though i got to the the final third um actually i got all the way up to the final boss and the one major tactic that I'd used to get me through all the combat uh, had completely failed me on the final boss. So like you, I had to drop it down to the easiest story, <laughs> oh, no. uh, story mode just to get through that. Uh, and then it kicks you straight into the DLC. Now, because uh, I felt let down, like I felt like I'd been given the feedback that my party was in a good shape and it was a good level and I was getting, I was breezing through everything to hit that stopping point was just like a big crushing blow to my self-esteem and <laughs> my gameplay choices. Um, so I'm, I'm actually taking a break before I tackle the DLC and I'll put it back up to normal difficulty and see how, how I go with that when I do go back. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a similar thing where it kind of sets you up in a way that you couldn't possibly foresee what's about to come. Um, I think I butt my head against the, the end boss for like eight hours over two days. And yeah, I was just like, you know, it's it's a uh, God. When did this come out? Many decades ago, and I'm just like I, you know, it's so old. I don't want to spend a whole week trying to beat this in the same way I would like uh, butt my head against the Souls game. Like let let's just see it through and and go through the story. So yeah, so the there's that uh, element. So yeah, I, I I was I felt relieved when you said you had to knock it down a bit because uh, <laughs> I was carrying that shame all week, which there shouldn't be any shame. Play games on easy if you want. Yeah, like you, I had no problems at all with this being ported, you know, like a primarily PC game ported to, to console. I thought mm. the controls were great. The the direct drive controls where you, your whole party moves with the analog stick, perfect. Um, it forces you into cursor when you're in combat, so you still have that uh, micromanagement. Yeah, uh, uh, overall, I'm really happy with it. I think it's a really good game, um, and it's, it's just stifled by old-fashioned game design, really. Yeah, we um, should mention the text the text block though, which I, I'm sure is an even bigger problem in Planescape than it is in Baldur's Gate, because mm-hmm. this is like a, an iso. Both of these games are are played from an isometric angle, and there's not a lot going on screen really in terms of animation. Uh, 
especially mm-hmm. in Planescape, like if, if it's going to, dis- if your character is going to do something like pick something up or hit somebody or uh, sit in a chair or something, more often than not, that animation is not on screen. It's just described in a text block and mm-hmm. at, that sits in the bottom middle of the screen. And this is where you really feel both the age of the game and the platform it was designed for you cannot move this text block you cannot change the size of this text block Mm -hmm. and especially if you're going to be playing handheld on switch i think that's where your your biggest obstacle is going to be because you've got to really increase the size of that text just to make it readable again you cannot change the size of this text block. So you're either going to be scrolling through a lot of huge text or you're going to be squinting at a lot of really tiny text. And that was that was the main accessibility problem I had playing this game. And uh, I, I probably would have had a better time overall if I was reading quite often what was basically a fantasy novel uh, in this tiny mm-hmm. little box in the bottom of my screen. It worked on the PC in the late 90s, but... If you play like Pillars of Eternity or if you play Divinity today, they have a different way of, of portraying that kind of stuff. Like that that still exists, but it's more customizable. It's a lot easier to read. Um, the other thing uh, that I found grading occasionally was because it's based on D&D and it happens, everything happens with dice rolls in the background, you could have a perfect strategy that'll fail just because you'll fail a couple of dice rolls in a row. Yeah, um, I had that. That was occasionally annoying. There was one boss in Planescape my first time through it. Uh, no problem. No problem at all. And then I had to restart the game. I don't remember why at this point, but I remember I had to do this boss twice. Second time, did the exact same strategy. Blew up in my face. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, but that, that you know, that's D&D. That's, that's part of uh, the game. It's all based on dice rolls. So if they fail, they fail. Uh, <laughs> so yeah uh yeah I'm, I'm very happy with my experience with Baldur's Gate I am glad I started here in terms of it feeling like a more generic setting fantasy RPG from reading up on it Planescape is a lot more story focused than Baldur's Gate mm-hmm. and uh, Icewind Dale is meant to be the one when people complained about a more story focused game they released this unrelenting <laughs> difficult uh combat heavy game just as a a frustration <laughs> release really yeah um so i'm, I'm going to save that one till last I'm, I'm actually thinking for for the other games once i finish with the first Baldur's gate and its dlc i will probably play on easy as a starting point just mainly just because of the age as well um, mm-hmm. no, no no qualms with that oh uh, did does planescape have dlc it does not no uh it, it didn't sell very well when it first came out so mm-hmm. Uh, the DLC on Baldur's Gate, I think you're talking about the Siege of Dragons Pier. That was actually something that Beamdog made 20 years later. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but Planescape didn't get treated to that. So it is what it is. Yeah. Um, also, there's two DLCs for the first Baldur's Gate. One of them is the Black Pits, which is just like an arena-based combat challenge thing. Mm. So I'm probably not going to bother with that. Yeah, that, that doesn't sounds me. really boring. Yeah. Um, but yeah, o- overall, like uh, I'm... I'm amazed with how fun they still are. Um, they still have the their little problems. It doesn't teach you well or or a lot. And um, Baldur's Gate also in its tutorial teaches you how to check for traps, which came up like twice. <laughs> Planescape does a... not teach you how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, there's just some, some weird age specific stuff. But overall, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, okay, well let's move on from D and D and. Tori, are you ready for our chat to jump into the Russian underground? Oh, no. 
<laughs> you know, we, we were going to do a Metro replay, a series replay. Oh, no. This is weird. <laughs> Sorry, this this is a rubbish joke. Somebody didn't do their <laughs> homework. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the joke is that Tori wanted to do a Metroid series replay, and I was going to joke that I because I played Metro instead of Metroid. But we will let you talk about Metroid. Uh, that didn't really happen. That was completely staged, by the way. Um, <laughs> oh, it's really an obvious, Yeah. Underneath the radio curtain. Uh, some Metroid Zero Mission. So th- is this a remake of the original NES game? Yes. Um, it's a remake with a lot of additions, both gameplay and story-wise. Uh, so the uh, original came out off the top of my head, 1987 on the NES. Um, around that era, at least. It's a obnoxiously difficult game by today's standards. It doesn't have a map. It's really easy to get lost because the NES realistically just doesn't have the power to really properly distinguish the different areas enough from each other. So it's really easy to get lost and it requires a lot of backtracking and exploring and that gets in the way as well. So it was definitely a top contender for a remake which is what Zero Mission was meant to be, which I believe it was released after Metroid Fusion and Metroid Prime. It was a very late Game Boy Advance game. And also, the original Metroid also had pits that if you fell down them, uh, there's nothing in them, and you had to jump your way back out, and they were often very difficult to get out of. Thankfully, they don't put those (laughs) in Metroid games anymore. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I I think I've blocked those from my memory. Because they definitely, on a modern Metroidvania, if you fell into a pit like that, you'd be thinking, there's a secret here, but there isn't. Zero Mission really does streamline the entire process, almost to a point where it kind of starts taking the fun away of exploring, because it outright tells you where the next area to go is it doesn't tell you how to get there but it's not that hard to figure out if it's telling you exactly this is where the next objective is i think they must have copied it from metroid prime because metroid prime after a little while of um exploring it'll just outright tell you i don't think it's fair to call it a hint system because it's just telling you Uh, (laughs) and you can turn it off you can't turn it off yeah you can turn it off oh good in metroid prime anyway yeah i didn't look in zero mission because honestly it had been a while since I played the original, so I kind of needed the the memory jog. <laughs> if you haven't played a Metroid game before, the general gist of it is you're given a world that you're relatively free to explore. You'll come across obstacles that will require a different item or a certain ability to overcome, which opens up the map even more so that you can explore more. It's a cycle. You'll end up encountering bosses that also kind of challenge you. If you played Zelda games, it's a similar thing where that will give you an item. It'll give you some opportunities to use the item and master it before jumping into a boss battle. Uh, not that the NES game really did that. It was a shoot. Uh, it, it was really a refinement, and a lot of those refinements between Metroid and Metroid Zero Mission have been added to Zero Mission. It will give you items that will not become... Um, necessary to beat the bosses but it will make it a hell of a lot easier uh there is a thing called sequence breaking where you can get items and unlock areas out of order and unintentionally make it hard for yourself if this is your first metroid game you're probably not going to do that accidentally unless you're really trying to butt your head against the wall to do something difficult that it's probably not going to be that difficult to do so overall it really is just a recreation of the first game with a lot of the lessons that they've learned about their own subgenre applied to it 
it's not nearly as obtuse. Like I said, the hint system does kind of, I won't say spoil the fun, but it kind of just, it just tells you where to go. It's not that great. What's really interesting though, is that they've added an additional chapter to the end of it. So once you beat Mother Brain, normally that would be the end. But in this case, she escapes the planet and it gets shot down again, but it damages your power suit, which is also another common theme in Metroid games. But it's to the point where she's in her zero suit form. So if you've if you played Smash Brothers before, you've seen Samus without her suit. This isn't necessarily where it comes from, but this is the first time it's really a fleshed out form of Samus, where she's got a, a pistol that can stun, but it can't really kill. But I, I bring this up specifically because of the nature of Metroid Dread is that you're being chased around by these Emmy robots. So this new chapter, the Zero Mission, if you will, has you trying to sneak past space pirates in a very weakened state. And if they spot you or they're alerted to you, they'll start chasing you down. And it has that same vibe to it. So I feel like they wanted to do Metroid Dread all the way back here. They definitely had it on their mind, the idea of being chased around. I mean, Metroid Fusion itself also has a mechanic with the SAX, which I won't spoil what that is specifically if you want to play it. <laughs> but um, that whole chase mechanic, it keeps popping up, and I think they really wanted to master it. I'm really surprised that it's taken them this long. They said that Metroid Dread has been in production for like 15 years, and they keep dropping the idea because they couldn't pull it off with the Emmy robot. But they got halfway there with this. It's basically, it was stealth. It was a whole stealth mission up until you, you get a new power suit, and then it kind of lets you backtrack through the entire areas that you've just gone through. It's kind of like a power fantasy. Mm -hmm. I don't know if the mission really needed to exist, though. Like, it doesn't take that long to beat. I mean, the whole game itself took me five hours to beat, and I think that Zero Mission was one hour of it. Because you're sneaking onto a, a pirate, a space pirate uh, ship, mothership, I think it is, and you find some ruins, and then you get the suit, and then you shoot your way out, and you fight another form of Ridley, because he's got, like, probably six forms now, and then the game's over. Overall, I didn't hate it. I quite enjoyed it, especially compared to the original I wouldn't recommend going to the original unless you know what you're expecting with that NES game level difficulty and what's, what would be the word, the obscurity of what you have to do. There's a lot of just mindless wandering around in the original. This one kind of overcompensates in trying to give you direction, but for a first Metroid game, it's probably a really good way to kind of introduce you to the mechanics and the controls and the universe itself. I mean, it's the first in the series chronologically, so it's a good place to start. I just wish that Nintendo would finally put Game Boy Advance games on the Switch. Yeah, so overall, recommend. Nice. Uh, I don't think I have access to that on anything, so uh, that's annoying. But yeah, I'm, I'm going to play through the uh, NES one at some point in the near future. Don't be ashamed then, to look yeah, up a map. That doesn't worry me. I'll see how I go. <laughs> <laughs> Wait till I get stuck, and then I'll then I'll then I'll cheat my way to victory. Yeah, okay, well, uh, I'll I'll go next then uh, to talk about Metro 2033. I picked both the Metro Redux games up on Switch because they're on sale for a ridiculous price, uh, thanks to our cat lawyer friend uh, for the, the heads up. Um, but I've got a, a bit of a lukewarm relationship with this series in the past. It is um, kicked off on, you know, the 360 PS3 era with a, a game called uh, Metro 2033, which is based on a, a novel by a, a Russian author. 
Um, and I don't think I ever beat the first one. I think I just sort of uh, petered out on it. Uh, I had to review the second one, um, which I enjoyed a little bit more. Uh, but I, I had some criticisms, which covers both games in in this uh, Switch series. Um, and I was playing the third one on on Game Pass on PC just after I built my my first ever gaming PC, and I, I think it left before I could finish it. So Metro twenty thirty three is the first one. A lot of my criticisms just come from the the pacing, um, and not particularly from the gameplay itself. Uh, as I'm probably just going into the final third, as we as we were talking here, it. I'm enjoying it a lot more than I did back on the the 360 era. I don't know how much of a revamp they've given it, you know, it being a a redux. I think it just amounts to a visual upgrade. But I think a lot of my criticism still stands. So the the problems that I have with it in terms of the pacing is that for every couple of levels you'll get that are, are awesome, it will then hit you with a slow walk through like a, a samey settlement everything in this game nearly everything in this game takes place underground in a metro system everything's dark everything's dank um and it's like by by the third time of walking through an underground uh like living area it's like i get it the conditions are poor you've you've shown me this three times it's a slow trudge through there's one section where you're trying to sneak out of an area where they're actually looking for you and your friends hide you in a luggage compartment and you have to sit there for five minutes uh while they lift the the train onto the tracks and you're just listening to two people have a discussion that has nothing to do with your objectives it's not even and it's kind of just childish uh toilet humor and it just really kills the pacing just and it always comes just as a point where you're really enjoying it um but the combat itself is really good like the controls are tight it is a focus on um stealth versus uh, loud gunplay you you have that choice if you want to make it it's kind of it kind of riffs on the survival horror thing a little because ammo is very scarce you're constantly looting it from you know people you've killed or trying to find it from you know already dead bodies or from secret compartments where people have been storing stuff uh, you also have the element of uh, some areas require that you wear a gas mask because the setting is after and you know uh, it set in the middle of a nuclear winter basically so you have to be uh making sure you're not breathing radiation uh with that you've got the consumables of uh, filters that you'll need to keep changing every few minutes to make sure you don't choke to death uh, on top of that your mask can get damaged in combat so you've got to manage that and you know keep replacing it with a healthy uh gas mask when you find it and yeah so that the, for me the optimal way to play this is with stealth it's got um an economy system with bullets you have your bullets that your guns fire and then there's bullets that is your currency uh, every time you're in a settlement you can talk to someone you can uh, trade your your crappy weapon in for a different weapon uh, and customize it to add like silencers and uh, scopes so there's, there's two types there's you know magnified scope and there's a night vision scope and so you're making this trade-off to make your your uh, little arsenal that you can carry into the ideal one to carry you through each situation so for me i've got like a assault rifle with a silencer and a scope so i can take people out from far away i've got an ak-47 uh with a, a night vision scope just for uh you know when things go loud it, i can use that it's more powerful and then i've got a shotgun which i'm using mainly for the the creature fights so when you when you're playing against humans 
the combat is super satisfying the ai is very good in how they press you um how they take cover uh with its age there's been a couple of glitches where people will like get stuck weirdly on on a corner and turn in you know abnormal directions and things like that it, it happens occasionally but the the creature combat i think is also a problem and it's it's also a problem in the the follow-up game as well because uh, all the um, mutated life forms that attack you will just rush you um, and as they fight you know your vision will get you'll get dirt kicked up in your vision and all the the combat sort of just degrades into you walking backwards unloading while everything's snapping at your face um, it's not challenging it's just kind of boring so but you know thank, thankfully in this replay I'm finding they hit you with the, the uh, creature fights a lot less than I remember so I don't know how much I'm conflating you know between the two but yeah the 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 human fighting is uh definitely a lot more interesting and enjoyable than than the creature fighting yeah so so that's pretty much where i am at the moment um just about to go into the final third i honestly don't think there's there's much left for me to go uh looking forward to get stuck into the second one so i can really appreciate uh what they've improved going into that the only thing i could say really is that because a lot of it takes place underground like you're looking at just black a lot you know with the occasional bits of a light source which um probably helps with the the porting but also the the lighting on the switch port is uh phenomenal i I would say it looks a lot more impressive than some of the other first person shooters that have made their way to switch so far um it's definitely prettier than like wolfenstein i know there's a generational difference there just uh just as a comparison about uh how pretty it is compared to others it is a a very good looking game on switch and i think that's where the 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 redux part comes in um they've really hammered that home that in fact just before we started recording i was playing through a level and uh you know i i've been in night vision the whole time uh, and i've i finally found a friendly group of people and i removed the the night vision and just the the lighting on the caverns on the walls from all the flickering from the light sources it, it, it looked really beautiful so there is that um you do occasionally go up to the surface uh where you, you definitely have to don your, your gas mask um and those are because they use it so seldom it's just like a massive breath of fresh air even if the environment restricts your characters there like the the that's definitely the visual highlight because you spend so much time troll you know trolling through dark pipes and and tunnels and then you come up to this beautiful open i say beautiful but it's completely destroyed moscow um and you you know you you work your way through there it's it's got a nice visual difference but i just wish they did more of the overworld stuff so yeah uh that's that uh the one thing i did find interesting is a lot of the times when you have uh video games based on books the author's tend to either not care at all about it because they're getting a paycheck or actively hate it the writer of the witcher kind of straddles both sides of that he he hates the games but he gets a paycheck so that's kind of softens the blow a bit sort of thing here the uh the writer of the book was actually one of the lead writers on the video game um i looked it up apparently he had a choice between taking on movie rights and taking on the video game at the time and he opted for the video game because he, he could be more hands-on and uh, he felt that was a better uh, fit for the, the the little universe he'd created um i thought that was a an interesting dynamic because so often it's it's the other way around and and they don't care or they don't respect video games as a medium or i thought that was a, a neat little touch and video games make, make way more money than movies do mm-hmm, that too <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah so i I think I would actually consider myself a mild convert 
on this. Like I've always felt they were good games. I just felt they were bogged down um, with these uh, annoying pacing moments where it, it just it, it slows to a crawl. Where I think the highlights of it is when you're in the midst of the these um, like sections of tunnel and you're trying to figure out the optimal path to get through either unseen or without alerting everyone. Or, you know, knowing when you should go guns blazing and, you know, clear out an area that way. But, yeah, so I like it a little more. Mild Convert, I, th- I think they're solid ports. I think if you've played these before and you love them, this is a great way to replay them. It, it looks terrific on docked and in handheld. The, the performance is perfect. I've I've had areas with multiple creatures just swarming me and, you know, it hasn't dropped a frame. And, like, the fidelity on, on those visuals is really sharp too, so... Yeah, if, you, if you're looking to replay these, absolutely. Switch is a worthwhile place. Equally, if you want to try them for the first time, they're on sale now, they're, they're cheap. I, I would recommend giving it a go. Um, just be aware that it kind the game kind of loves you not playing it for, for stretches, and I, I don't quite know why that is. Um, when I reviewed the second one, I, I called it a bit indulgent. It was almost like they didn't trust you to be looking at the things they wanted you to look at. And in fact, the second one, I feel, is a bit more forceful in... like It's like they're grabbing your head and turning it towards the thing, you know, because they don't trust that you'll see it. The, there's a little less of that in the first one, but equally, they, they still love just slowing you down and not, not letting you, you progress. So, yeah. Uh, Joel's music time. So, Andrew, you've been playing uh, Manita, and this is the one where you play as a shark. Yeah, Maneater is an open-world shark RPG, and we use the, the term RPG really lightly there. Uh, it, it, the whole thing is set up like a like it's a reality show starring this really obnoxious, kind of vile, redneck character called Scaly Pete, who hunts sharks and kills them for a reality show that that's that's his entire shtick basically and at the start of the game he kills a bull shark and then wounds this bull shark's infant so when he re-encounters this shark later in life he'll be able to recognize it uh, when he kills it as an adult and you play as that infant shark and the rest of the game is basically a parody of extreme reality tv shows like i don't know the names of any of them but there's all that those ice fishing shows and i'm sure there's shark hunting shows uh it's also mixed into a shark documentaries because you, you play as the shark through the entire game and whenever you do something in the game then this kind of rich and richard attenborough style voice will will narrate what you just did in a very ironic way like uh my favorite point was after flopping along this commercial beach devouring about a dozen people before i went back into the water uh this voice cut in and said uh hunting bull sharks was made illegal in the united states but many hunters have opted to respond to this by not caring (laughs) that kind of that kind of comedy throughout the entire game uh so you do play as this shark from their infancy to growing all the way up to a mega shark size and what that means is they they're they're mutating basically uh uh so it only takes a few hours to 
see them go from infant to full-size shark actually the timeline this game really takes place on isn't very clear but it does seem to be a few hours (laughs) to a few days uh who knows it doesn't matter this is a really dumb game and you shouldn't be thinking about things like this this should be uh (laughs) this is totally uh if you find yourself asking how he eats and breathes and other science facts say to yourself it's just a game you should really just relax it's it's totally that kind of thing Uh, There are a number of mutations that the shark can apply over the course of the game, and this is where the RPG aspects come in. Uh, There's rock, electric, and shadow mutations, and you can equip the rock head or the shadow fin, and they have different effects. Like if you equip the electric fin when you do your dodge in the water, then it'll make this bioelectric wave come out from you that stuns everything around you, which can be pretty handy. And as you complete goals in the game, or even as you just just eat things, because you are eating everything you come across in this game, and as the game often reminds you that sharks are the the garbage disposals of the ocean, uh, you get these like genetic boosters that you can then apply to your different mutations. That's how that's how it's an RPG, but really it's it's not that important because it's super easy to get all your stuff up. It's really more a progression milestone than actually making RPG choices. When I got to the end of the game, I had everything capped out without trying. So you know it's an RPG, but in air quotes. Now you go through a number of different regions along this area that resembles the coast around Louisiana and Florida, and there's a pretty good variety of underwater environments you can explore. Like the first area you explore is basically a swamp; it's really shallow, and then you go through like kind of like a garbage dump that has a lot of sewer pipes you can swim through, and then you're at a, a an ocean water park at one point, and then the last stage is you're actually out in the Gulf which sort of resembles the ocean. So there's a, even though everything is set in the ocean, there's a pretty good variety of things to explore here. It doesn't all feel the same, even though very easily could have if they hadn't put so much care into designing these environments. And each region has a single grotto, and this this leads into, you know, kind of hinting at what's going on with this shark, because there's some science thing in each of these grottos exactly what it is is never really explained but if you're really paying attention to the environment you can see that there's some company or some scientist is doing something in these grottos and when you go down in them that's where you can start messing with your shark's genetics so that's a kind of an interesting environmental storytelling aspect of the game and in every region you go to there's a lot of things you can discover that it's just a checklist sandbox style game it's like assassin's creed but you're a shark and it's much smaller (laughs) this is not a 50 hour game to 100 hour game like assassin's creed is you'll get through it much faster than that like there's landmarks you have to discover these are all like sight gags or most of them are movie references Uh, there's license plates that you have to find and bite and coolers that people have just dumped their picnic coolers in the water and you can eat them and they're just filled with junk food, and somehow this gives you the genetic codes that you need to boost up your stuff. Again, don't think about it too hard. And the shark is equipped with sonar, so like every few seconds I can just blast out that sonar again. I can see everything around me. That makes it really easy to discover not only what enemies are around me and what fish are around me that I can chomp on, it also shows me exactly where all the pickups are at, so finding things is not difficult at all. And there's also quests of a sort but they're they're pretty 
straightforward quests. You're either eating some form of sea life, you have to go to a specific area and eat a specific number of a specific type of fish or turtles or seals or whatever, or do the same thing with people because you you eat a lot of people in this game as well uh and it's it's pretty horrifying but in a, in a comedic way because all the humans in this game are just disgusting horrible terrible people there you feel absolutely no compunctions about just devouring these people whole because they're just awful <laughs> awful people and once you've finished all the quests in an area then you get to fight the local area's apex predator which is basically a boss just a big supercharged fish and and once that's defeated then you can move on to the next area and you just go through and through and through until you've reached the final area in the gulf and you finish the game now there are were some significant bugs I encountered. I don't know if these are specific to the Switch port or if these happened on Xbox One on that version as well. I did hear the Xbox One version of this game was almost unplayably bad when it first came out. I didn't find this unplayable at all. I enjoyed myself throughout, but the significant bug I encountered was when the shark gets thrashed by an enemy, which is where they get trapped in an enemy's jaws and then you have to struggle to get yourself free while the, the enemy just wiggles you around in the water like a shark thrashing and also when you breach the shark above the ocean line the game sometimes loses track of where the shark is at and where the water line is at so your shark will just plummet down to the ocean floor like it's just falling from the sky and there's no water there and then after you you've hit the bottom of the ocean then suddenly you reappear at the water line and this happened repeatedly over and over and over it never really affected my game to a point where i died but it was noticeable and it was disconcerting <laughs> but uh that was the major bug i encountered and then there is the infamy stat and this game has a gta style police system where if you go and you bite on humans long enough then eventually bounty hunters will start coming after you and that builds up your infamy stat if you keep chomping on humans while these bounty hunters are chasing after you. If you chomp on humans when you don't have the bounty hunters after you, then you don't gain any infamy at all. So the only way to grind up this infamy stat is to get the bounty hunters after you and then just keep biting them until you move up to the next tier of infamy. That's when the next bounty hunter comes after you, and then that's kind of like a mini boss fight, and you you swallow that bounty hunter and then you have to work your way up through the next infamy tier and there's 10 of these and to finish the game you have to stop every so often in the region you're in and just grind infamy until you're reached the minimum level it wants you to be at to move to the next area and at the end of the game i was at infamy level six so for 100 percent completion i basically had to stop for one to two hours and just swallow bounty hunters over and over and over and over it was really repetitive and really boring <laughs> it was definitely the low point of the game but i only had to do it for 100 percent completion i say just just don't bother doing it and i think you'll have a good time uh as i said man eater is dumb and it knows it like but that's not a bad thing at all it's like uh roger ebert has a really good quote about Disney's live-action George of the Jungle movie is George of the Jungle is a dumb movie for smart people. I feel the same way about Maneater. It's a really dumb game, but I think it's pretty well designed, and I enjoyed my time with it. It's it's stupid, but it knows it. <laughs> it's very self-aware. <laughs> 
And it also doesn't outstay its welcome. Uh, nothing is so well hidden that you need a guide to find it. It takes about an hour to do everything in a single region, and about 10 to 15 hours to 100% completion. So like I said, just skip the infamy grind, and I think it's a good time. I enjoyed Maneater. I think it's a good game. Nice. Uh, I have been wanting to try it, so this uh, encourages me a little. So yeah, that, that sounds cool. Okay, last thing we're going to talk about is the, the big beer. Re- the big release for the week, uh, which is uh, Mario Golf Super Rush. Uh, the reviews have been incredibly polarizing. Um, I think behind the scenes we were talking about the reaction and I was saying how on Twitter I saw one uh, notable critic saying it was the worst Nintendo game uh, in the last decade and then not 10 seconds up the up my feed there was the Polygon review saying I think it's the best Nintendo game in a decade. So uh, yeah. yeah, that feels too coordinated <laughs> to me. Yeah, it's uh, it's a weird one. Mario Golf, uh, it's you know it's something uh, Andrew's been looking forward to for a while. I've been looking forward to it. The reason Andrew's more excited for it is because it's brought back uh, an adventure mode of sorts. Uh, we'll get into into that really. Um, I, I I dare say that's where most of our discussion is going to be based because you need to play it to unlock the things uh, for the other modes. Anyway. Yeah, the adventure mode is sort of the entire package, really. Yeah. Um, and uh yeah it's uh the conceit here is more about what happens between your shots and kind of racing and rushing around it's it's kind of mario golf by way of mario kart which i think is how to say i have very mixed feelings on this so far um i'm just about to finish off the the second area in the campaign which is the uh, canyon area i forget its exact, its exact name and for a game that's called Super Rush, the the whole running between shots thing and battling really bogs it down, uh, which kind of makes the that title feel a bit ironic for me. Um, and it's just not really what I want from a golf game. And it's it's not to say it's it's bad either, but not not every Mario sports spinoff has to be Mario Kart for me. Like this could just be. A golf game with Mario hazards and Mario characters, and I feel like it would be more rounded. the The core like golf mechanics themselves are great. I think they're they're pretty good. I, I I'm enjoying hitting the shots and you know beating the the environment. It's just everything in between. Um, I don't know how you, you're going on this, Andrew. I, I don't think Tori bothered. Looking at the marketing for the game you know the marketing was very focused on the speed golf mode mm-hmm. which uh you know you, you hit the ball and now you have to chase after it to where the ball landed and along the way you can use special abilities to interfere with you, the other people you're playing with which is a fine idea on paper i thought that that could have been a silly you know multiplayer party mode which is what i thought it was mm-hmm. that's the entire game Mm-hmm. and i i was a big fan of mario golf on the nintendo 64 that is the game that got me into golf which is the only sport i will willingly play in the real world um <laughs> mario golf on gamecube toadstool tooler also is an amazing game i didn't play the 3ds version because i just I, as i've said in the past i just was not particularly interested in playing my 3ds for whatever reason um but uh, from what i've heard that's a good game too uh the golf mechanics in this game are very different from how they worked in Mario Golf on 
Nintendo 64 and on GameCube and, and even the Game Boy Color Mario Golf game, which is the Golf RPG that I was hoping this would be. Suffice to say, it's not. <laughs> this is a very mm-hmm. different sort of game. Uh, it's not outright bad. It's not like Mario Tennis Aces where I, I was just so annoyed with it that I just didn't want to play it. I'm just incredibly disappointed that they they wanted to do something so different when I didn't want Mario Golf to be different. I wanted mm-hmm. I wanted a Mario Golf game like Mario Golf 64 and Mario Golf Toadstool Tour. And in the past on the show, I, I have gone into some games pretty hard for being too much like old games. But, you know, Super Mario gets a new game every couple of years. There hasn't been a Mario Golf game since, like, 2013, I think, was when the 3DS one came out. The one before that was on GameCube, so that was 10-plus years before that. Mario Golf has not outstayed its welcome, and I still enjoy them. So I didn't want this to be different, but this is... Just it's a very different game. And what I thought was going to be a side mode is not a side mode. It's not a party mode. It's the entire game. And mm-hmm. I was I, I tolerated it being in all those Nintendo Directs because I thought, okay, this is the new mode. They want to hype this up. I, I shouldn't have, but I assumed the tournament modes would still be there. The ring golf modes would be there. In in the old Mario Golf games, there's a, a mode called Ring Golf where you had to shoot uh, your ball through rings that were dotted around the course so it it made you have to you know take unorthodox paths through the course instead of just shooting straight for the green that was interesting and there's like a club slots mode where at the start of the course you would play a slot machine that would determine what golf clubs you had uh throughout the course and that was all you got so you had to work with what what that gave you that was that was an interesting party mode for multiplayer. There was a match play mode where you would actually play that to unlock new characters. You would boot up the match play mode and you would see the characters you had unlocked. And then there would be another character there in portrait, like a hidden in silhouette. And if you beat that character, then you could play as them. And that was how you unlocked all the characters. And you had to beat them all in succession to unlock them. I don't even know how you unlock new characters in this. I don't even know if there are any new characters to unlock. But all these modes are not here. There's just the story mode and there's like a straight stroke play mode, which actually plays just like the original Mario Golf game. But it's a side mode and there's nothing that I can tell that you can unlock there. So there's nothing new to do there. Uh, There's nothing new to see there. So I I don't even know why you would play it. So the Mario Golf game that I wanted is a side mode where there's really nothing to do or see. And the party game that I thought was going to be a party game I could safely ignore is the entire game. So Mm -hmm. I'm incredibly disappointed. (laughs) And if you're like me and you're coming at this where you're a big fan of Mario Golf 64 and Mario Golf Toes to a Tour, pass. Do not get this. Just just dig up your GameCube and just play that instead because... I'm so disappointed in this game. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 not what I wanted either. Um, like I've I've never actually played a Mario Golf. Uh, I only picked up the Game Boy Advance one because you raved on about it when we did uh, the Golf Story chat. And like on some level, like the the adventure mode, I'm I'm enjoying that. You know, it seems each world is focused on a different playstyle. Like uh, the second world, all the uh, the holes are on different levels of you know different size cliffs and you you know for a large part of the mode you can choose which uh flag you want to go to first and you strategize you know your path i that i don't mind uh, i love the uh the the mario style obstacles that appear 
I just I don't want to be racing when I'm playing golf and not when it slows the whole thing down. Yeah. Like have you have um, you played just a, a stroke play mode? It's called like play challenge or solo challenge or something on the main menu. Yeah, no, I, I I've only been on the, the adventure mode so far. The menus are terrible. Like uh mm-hmm. If you played Mario Tennis on Wii U, where it's just an onslaught of menus and they're just really plain and kind of ugly to look at, it's the same deal here. There's just there's no mm-hmm. charm or character to these menus. It's a very workman-like design. It's just it's all function. There's no style. There's no form to it. It, it just it's really not fun to look at what well, well, one positive is i'm finding um there are some elements of golf video games i've been a lifelong fan of golf video games um from like pga tour on the playstation um which hooked me in ways that i just had never thought <laughs> it would have like i'd never had an interesting golf before that and lee carvalho's putting challenge <laughs> and you know the, there's you know there's been a, a couple that i've latched onto over the years uh, so the only thing that I have really to compare this to as a similar style thing is uh, Everybody's Golf on PlayStation, which I adore. Um, but I've all throughout all these golf games, I've always been terrible at putting if it's not close to the hole. Um, I'm very bad at reading the grids, um, but I'm finding that a lot easier in this one. Um, I don't know if it's just the you know the mechanics are more forgiving, but I I, I feel like it it does teach you those golf basics a little a little better. But then it does that. You know, the thing is trying to make you rush through it <laughs> uh, to beat, you know, arbitrary time limits and, and things like that. So that, that that's that's where I'm struggling with it. Yeah, if it was just stroke play for the adventure mode, I think I'd be a lot happier. Yeah. Like, and I'm not as far as you in the adventure mode because, well, I had, to re- I had to restart my save file because of how your character starts out, which is dumb. Let's start there. Um, <laughs> it's a golf RPG, so as, as you complete training sessions like i haven't really encountered any real quests yet but i i have read that the more rpg quest style stuff starts showing up more in the latter half of the game i've just been doing training sessions and then golf tournaments so far and when you complete those you earn experience points and when you get a level up then you can improve your character's stats now i i was trying to be clever and you know build up my character's like more technical skills because uh, I just assumed that their drive would be adequate to start out in the game. Their drive's not adequate to start out in the game. If you don't like put like literally your first 20 levels into your drive stat, you cannot reach the green in enough strokes <laughs> to actually make par, even on the starting courses, which is ridiculous. That's like playing an RPG and your character doesn't start off with enough strength to defeat the first enemy in the game. That's idiotic. Uh, it's... Uh, that, that that made me so mad, but I, I I swallowed my anger and I just started a new save file and just pumped as many levels as I could into my drive stat until I was at about 200 yards. And then I, I backed out of the game for a minute and I went to like the solo play mode, which is like the classic Mario Golf game without this stupid running between the ball sessions. And I started looking at the characters. The weakest character, Toad, still had more drive than I did after doing that. And I was, wow. yeah. Wow. I was, <laughs> this game just, it starts you off on a really bad footing. If you're still getting this, even after I sit here and pummel it and Andy sits here and goes, eh, um, put your first like 20 levels or so into drive. Otherwise you will not period be able to compete period. It mm-hmm. won't happen. And, uh, and then the other thing I wanted to say at the start 
with this speed golf mode, uh, which is the entire game. Uh, the, like the first goal in the game is to finish the front nine on the first course uh, with uh, a score better than plus four. And fine, you do that. The computer-controlled opponents being on the course who you have to watch play, like if you if you sink your ball mm. faster than they do, you can't just skip to the next hole. You have to watch them finish playing. They have absolutely nothing to do with the scenario. This, this scenario has nothing to do with beating the hole faster than them. The entire goal is to get less than four strokes to finish that, that first quest. So they contribute nothing. And the, the the speed golf running to your ball after you've hit it thing contributes nothing, but it's still there. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's so frustrating that this is a game that I want to like. I can see the elements of the games that I loved in the past are still here. There's just this other thing there that I have no interest in doing that I'm required to do. Yeah, it's a massive block and it's a, it's a thing that would only make sense when you're playing it with other people. Yeah, I mean, I, and I was fine with that being a party mode. I was like, great, that that looks like that could yeah. be a fun party mode with a group of friends, but not with computer controlled. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I think we're on the similar similar things there. But the, the core golf mechanics are good. And I'm enjoying that. But you know, you know, golf is about taking your time, making sure your shot's good. It's not about rushing, and it's certainly not about racing other people in clumsy mechanics to the to the next ball the other thing that does is it robs you of being able to see good shots yeah it, I, that was always really satisfying in mario golf and in toadstool tour and even in golf story where like where you got to watch your ball land and see how well mm-hmm. your plan with your shot executed you don't get to see that you you as you hit the ball and now you're running and you've got to get there as fast as you can so you don't even often get to see how badly you just screwed up until you just reach your ball which is mm-hmm. you know technically more true to life but you don't play video games to be true to life <laughs> you, you play mm-hmm. a golf video game so you can get 18 holes in in a half an hour which uh, instead of you know half your day like in real life yeah I, I would definitely say if you've got a playstation play everybody's golf instead or i think you'll have a much better time i think mario golf is on the wii u virtual console just get that instead um i'm, I'm gonna see through the adventure mode uh, i'll see how far i i can uh stomach it uh it depends on how those mechanics evolve but uh yeah uh yeah it, it's not bad it's just not what i wanted definitely um, yeah and some yeah some baffling design decisions when it comes to the uh the stat boosts and and things like that i've read a few accounts where people that have finished the adventure mode their um me is just way overpowered that it's like they've had to ban themselves from using it outside (laughs) oh yeah and the the me's (laughs) yeah you have to play the adventure mode with your me who do not fit in with the mario characters at all and everybody Mm. in this game has a really annoying voice and yeah. yeah and and you just i hate the yeehaws. and you hear them just over and over and over because there's no voice acting it does that nintendo thing where there's just a little sound clip when somebody's new mm-hmm. dialogue comes up and it's just a very limited selection of sound clips that are super annoying to listen to and it also does that paper mario thing where there are no like actual characters here like your, your golfing buddies are toadette charging chuck and boo now, Toadette is a distinct character with a distinct design and distinct personality, which is great. Charging Chuck is a Charging Chuck, and Boo is a Boo. And these are the other <laughs> two main characters in your golfing party. It's just, 
Mm-hmm. What are you doing with this franchise, Nintendo? I am just, I'm so <laughs> frustrated with the Mario games lately. I just, ah. Yeah, I, I was barely three minutes in and I'd already heard yeehaw uh, more than I ever wanted to hear. Also, when you do the challenges, if you hit a good shot yeah, uh, for your final shot, it'll do like celebratory music and your character will do like an annoying noise. And then it'll do the same, it'll cut that off abruptly to do the same thing again to say that you've passed the challenge. <laughs> <laughs> it's so weird um so yeah uh lukewarm uh obviously you know depending on how much uh drive excuse the pun we have to uh finish it you know we'll probably double back and see if we've changed our minds on it but uh yeah it's at the moment it's it's not what i wanted from a mario golf game and it's not what i wanted from mario golf game and i'm angry about it <laughs> I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed. And I'm mad! (laughs) Uh, So that's it for the episode. So, uh, yeah. Okay, folks, what are we playing in the coming week? Tori, we'll start with you, because you haven't spoken for a while. Oh, yeah. Um, So I'm continuing my run of the entire Metroid series in chronological order. So I'm just about finished with Metroid Prime. So I'll move on to Hunters and 2 next. But Doki Doki Literature Club also comes out this week on Switch. Mm. Already got it uh, pre-ordered and downloaded. Nice. Um, it's not for the faint of heart, so... <laughs> yeah, Do not that, be that, that, deceived that... by this game's cover art. <laughs> <laughs> that, that gets dark real quick. Yeah, huge content warning for that one. Um, as much as I'd love to joke and trick people into playing it, it that's just cruel. It, it's got some mm-hmm. sensitive topics in there. Uh, it's, it is a psychological horror game. I'm glad that, that this time around they outright said it when it was announced rather than being coy about it. Yeah, just go in expecting some really dark um, mental health related topics. Yeah, I, I when I finished it on PC, I had to sit down and have a, a good think about things for a couple of hours. That was, uh, oh what yeah, am I doing with like my a good life? week afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> I had the physical version of that pre-ordered, but that's not out till the end of August. Yeah, I'm probably gonna pick it up on physical. I won't bother with digital because I've already got it on PC because it was free. Yeah, uh, so this version has a, a bunch of extra side topics that hopefully will flesh out the characters a little bit more. I don't mm-hmm. know if those side. Um, Stories will have the same horror elements in it, so I might talk about it next time. Just uh, we'll put some big flashing lights to say, "Don't go in if you're uh, if you're not comfortable with this stuff." Yeah, um, I don't even think we've got a physical version listed on any Australian stores at the moment, so I'll keep track of that. Might have to import it if it's not coming over here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So, uh, Andrew, what are you playing? I'm going to play Tony Hawk's Pro Skater One Plus Two, which, from everything I'm hearing about it so far, will not make me angry. So, look forward to that. So, I reckon I'll be finished with uh, Metro 2033 uh, in, if not tonight, uh, definitely tomorrow. So, I'm going to jump straight into Metro Last Light because I'm I'm enjoying it enough that I want to uh, keep going through the series. I'm going to keep going with Mario Golf for a little bit uh, and see how, you know, if it changes my mind. I, I would like to finish the adventure mode. We'll we'll see how I go. Um, I also picked up um, The Outer Worlds for a ridiculously cheap price yesterday while in a store, um, and I have a fascination with uh, ports and downports, and I want to see for myself how, how much it runs and how much they've improved it from when it originally launched on Switch. Uh, I might end up playing it more on on PC if I enjoy it, but we'll, I'm, I'm willing to give that a go. So I, I don't know if I'll get that in this week, but I just thought I'd mention it as something as an upcoming thing to look out for. 
thanks for listening to this episode of End Focus. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps us to get notice, and you can also listen and subscribe on Stitcher, Spotify, and other podcast services. Make sure to check out our sister shows, PlayState and The Power of X, which is just relaunched with our new host, Scotty J. Mann. Be sure to join our Discord server to interact with the lively game Podular community. You can follow us on Twitter, YouTube, and at GamePodular.com for updates, news, and other content. Links are in the show notes. If you'd like to support our shows, you can buy us a coffee or become a Game Podular Patreon. The details for both are on our website. Thanks in advance. This episode was edited by Andy, and you can follow him on Twitter at Flame Roast Toast. Tori is at Stew2, and I'm at Play Critically. And you can read my long-form reviews on my website at PlayCritically.com.
freaking cat. You need to settle down. 